We were accused of aiding and abetting a terrorist organization, being members of a terrorist organization, financing a terrorist organization. These were really, really serious charges. Like, some of them carried the death penalty. You can't silence me. In fact, if anything, you've given me a platform, you've given me microphones, you've actually made my voice louder, and damn it, I'm going to keep using that platform. Welcome to UQ Changemakers, a podcast series where we interview some of the most influential and inspiring members of the UQ community. My name is Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. In this episode, we chat with award-winning journalist Peter Grester. Peter made international headlines in late 2013 when he and fellow Al Jazeera journalists were arrested on trumped-up terrorism charges in Egypt. After 400 days in prison, Peter is now an advocate for media freedom and earlier this year joined UQ's School of Communication and Arts as the UNESCO Chair of Journalism and Communication. Peter, welcome. Great to be here. Now, your work as a foreign correspondent has seen you travel to the UK, Europe, Mexico, Afghanistan, South Africa and more. Why did you first get involved in journalism and what aspect of the job has kept you coming back for more? It wasn't the writing. I kind of hated writing, really. I know that when I was at... at, um, I nearly gave up the the whole journalism degree thing because I remember a friend of mine who I had seen after a few years, an old school friend, and she asked me what I was doing, and I said I was was, um, studying journalism, and she just went, oh, my God, endless English assignments for the rest of your life. And I thought, God, she's right. (laughs) It was was terrible. Um, No, the thing that always... The thing that I loved about this job is is the fact that it's a license to indulge your curiosity. It's a license to stick your nose into other people's business. Um, it's an excuse to explore the world, to find things out. And that really answers the second part of your question. That's what keeps me coming back. You know, this is an incredibly fascinating, wonderful, infuriating, exasperating world that we live in. And my job over the years has been to travel all over that world. Um, I've been to almost 100 countries at last count um, for, for my work and you know, explore them in, in, in great depth, in great detail, in a level that, that nobody as a tourist ever gets to, to do. And so it's been a fantastic, fantastically privileged existence in that respect. Can you name your favorite country oh, gosh, or yeah, your favorite is, story <laughs> over those years as a foreign correspondent? It's, you know, favorites, are, it's, a, it's a really difficult word because it implies positive. And, and if I said that my favorite country was Afghanistan, um, people's eyes tend to, uh, eyebrows tend to rise up. Um, but it, I loved it because it was a massive adventure for me. It was my first, uh, well, my second experience of war. I'd spent quite a bit of time in Yugoslavia, but it was the first time when I had a real responsibility as a journalist. I was the BBC and Reuters correspondent covering Afghanistan. And it was back in 1995 when journalists were seen as legitimate players on the battlefield. We were seen as legitimate observers. We had a role that everybody understood and accepted, which meant that we weren't targets in the conflict. Of course, it was always a dangerous place. But we were very careful. We were scrupulously careful about maintaining our professional independence, about crossing the front lines whenever it was, whenever it was possible to do so, so that we were able to make both sides understand that we exercise that right of, of independence and neutrality as, as reporters. And it was an experience which 
taught me more about myself, but also my my job, my career, than I think any other place before or since. It was an incredibly rich learning experience. But also, I don't know, there's something about Afghanistan that just gets under your skin. It's a stunningly beautiful place in a way that gets you in, in, in the pit of your stomach. It's not pretty. You'd never put images of Afghanistan on a Christmas card. But it is beautiful in a really raw, vi- vital sense of the word. Um, and the people really are extraordinary. You talked about how your role as a foreign correspondent was respected by both sides in a conflict. Do you feel like that role has changed over the years? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, Afghanistan is a really good way of understanding that change. Because as I said, back in 1995, both sides accepted us. Um, And crucially, the other side or the opposition at that point was in fact the Taliban, um, an organization that was really emerged out of out of Afghanistan's own frustration, Afghan people's own frustration with the warlords that were tearing the country apart. And of course, it was always a radical organization, a radical Islamist organization. But again, even though they didn't necessarily understand our theology, didn't necessarily agree with our politics, just as we didn't necessarily understand or agree with them, they still accepted us as as legitimate players on on the battlefield. But if we fast forward, to, and, and also governments were very keen for us to, to, to report because they also recognized the value in really good understanding of what was taking place in Afghanistan, what was driving the Taliban, what were the motives behind their, their organization, what were their strategies, what were they thinking of, what were they trying to achieve. Um, if we fast forward to 2001, when I went back into Afghanistan after 9-11, and everything had changed at that point. For the first time, we saw the governments dropping bombs on on, on um, journalists. The Americans dropped a bomb on the Al Jazeera Bureau in Kabul at the time. Um, and the Taliban started attacking journalists specifically because they were journalists. These, these weren't just incidental casualties. There was one convoy that was carrying an Australian cameraman, Harry Burton, who worked for Reuters. And... Maria Grazia Cattulli, who was a very close friend of mine and a, a wonderful Italian journalist, and they were traveling up from Pakistan to Kabul at the time, and, and the Taliban stopped the convoy, pulled the journalists out, uh, let everybody else in the convoy go, including their drivers, um, and then took them into the hills around the place called Sarobi and emptied the magazines of their Kalashnikovs into them. And so that was a point at which we understood that the dynamic had changed very radically that journalists were no longer simply neutral players in this, con- in this conflict um, who were able to exercise the right and the responsibility to speak to all parties in a conflict. All of a sudden, they were being targeted by both sides, specifically because they were journalists. Now, the question is why? And I think, from my observations, from my thinking about this, it felt very much as though the thing that's changed was that the nature of the conflict. In the past... Wars over tangible things, land, water, ethnicity, and so on. Journalists are observers. That's how it was in 1995 when the conflict was over power in, in, in Kabul. But what 9-11 did was create a, a war over ideas, over isms. And in that war of ideas, the place where ideas themselves are transmitted becomes a part of the battle space. And that is, by definition, the media. And so... Journalists are no longer observers. We are 
whether we like it or not, we're participants, we're players in this conflict of ideas. And that's really what's made us targets in a way that we, we weren't in, in the years, the decades before 9-11. Did that make you question your future as a foreign correspondent or strengthen it because you decided you had to report on what was going on? No, I always felt that this was, I felt quite bloody minded about it, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I've, I've lost quite a few friends over the years, including a very close friend of mine, um, my producer, Kate Payton, in Mogadishu. Um, but it's always made me feel, as I said, more bloody-minded about, about the role that we have, you know, to say, look, screw you. you, you tried to shut us up and you, you can't. You were talking before about how journalists went from being observers to being participants. And that's very much something that happened to you when your arrest occurred. Can you walk me through what happened that day? I was in Cairo covering the Christmas New Year period just for a couple of weeks uh, for Al Jazeera. Uh, I didn't know Egypt very well. I knew enough to be able to do some very basic routine reporting of the crisis, of the ongoing conflict there. Um, but I didn't really get it in the way that a lot of journalists who spent a long time in any one particular story do. You know, when you, when you spend time, you start to get a feel for the edges of a story. You start to get a sense about how far you can push those boundaries before you're going to upset one side or the other. And because I didn't know Egypt well enough, I didn't understand where those limits were, we were playing with a very straight bat. The government would make a statement, would pick up the phone and call the opposition, and then call an analyst to make sense of it all. It was... You know, journalism 101. The trouble was that at the time, the opposition was the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, they'd last formed government. They were ousted from government in a coup in the middle of 2013. And although the government, the new interim government, had kind of taken to accusing the Brotherhood of, of being involved in acts of terrorism, it hadn't officially been banned. And so we still considered them to be the opposition. They were certainly the best organized political group in the country. Um, but, you know, as I said, we weren't doing anything particularly controversial. We were just seeking out their responses to a lot of the things that were taking place in, in um, Egypt at the time. So on the night of December 28th, I was, <laughs> I was getting ready to go out for dinner with a friend of mine. We we'd play this one um, again. I had my now laptop open listening to streaming as Triple J through the laptop um, as I like to do, listening to Australian uh, alternative rock and dancing around the room. Um, you know, getting getting dressed and ready to go out. And there was a knock on the door. I thought, that's all a little bit odd. I didn't expect any visit at that point. Certainly, if there was any messages, then the hotel or my colleagues would always use the phone. Anyway, there was a rather more urgent knock, demanding knock, and I went to the door and cracked it open as I was stuffing in my shirt into my trousers. And the door was flung open as if there was a spring behind it. You know, someone obviously pushed it in. And the room was just filled with, I don't know, I, I, to this day I don't know how many there were, were there. It certainly felt like a lot, maybe six, eight, ten, I don't really know. I had to retreat to the back of the hotel room and they filled the room in with guys and they started ransacking the place. They slammed the lid down on the laptop, they shoved the laptop into a bag, they grabbed all of my equipment, all of my notebooks, cameras, everything, they started going through my clothes, the whole, the whole lot. Um, and I'm protesting, you know, saying, what, what's going on? Are you guys, who, who are you guys? They're all in plain clothes. They weren't uniformed. But they had um, an official, a guard from, or a security officer from the hotel, 
with them. So it was quite clear that this was official. And finally, you know, I said, look, am I under arrest? And they, the, the guy who was clearly in charge said, can you read Arabic? And, and I said, well, no. And he said, well, then there's no point showing you the arrest warrant. Um, I was marched off down to the to a room, a uh, police room, where I found my colleague Muhammad Fami was was waiting. Um, he too had been arrested, and yeah, went from there. So, what happened in those days following? It sounds like it was a whirlwind that you could it was a barely very, understand what was going it was, on. It was a very strange uh, period because we, we, I thought initially someone had made a mistake. You know, <laughs> there's no way that the work, the very ordinary journalism that we'd been doing could have been con- misconstrued as, as terrorism, you know, I, I've, or as, as, as any kind of criminal act. But as things went on, we, it, we knew we were in trouble because I was taken to the National Intelligence Directorate, which was the serious end of, of, of this, the security business in Egypt. And these are the guys that deal with terrorism. And I was told of the charges. Uh, we were accused of, of aiding and abetting a terrorist organization, being members of a terrorist organization, financing a terrorist organization, broadcasting false news to undermine national security. I mean, these were really, really serious charges. Like, some of them carried the death penalty. Um, and it was about as serious as it could possibly have been if short of actually pulling the trigger on the Kalashnikovs ourselves, um, we knew that this was, this was, this was something quite, quite dramatic, quite serious. Anybody who watched the trial would have recognized that there was no evidence. It was just ridiculous. Um, there, were, there were massive numbers of observers from human rights groups to other journalists to uh, legal experts, lawyers, and so on, diplomats—they're all watching every stage of this of the process, and nobody walked away from that thinking that there was any evidence, any evidence at all, to confirm the allegations. And so, we always thought, that, look, they've got to go through at least the the appearance of of due process, um, but surely they can't convict us. We're going to get to the end of the trial. We'll be acquitted, and that'll be it. There'll be, you know, we can all go home. We'll have a party and, and celebrate and, and get on with our lives. But we all thought, also thought, well, maybe they've got to convict us of something just to at least justify spending six months in, in prison on, and on trial on terrorism charges. But if you had a good look at what we what we're charged with and, and any evidence, we thought, look, the most they could convict us of was some kind of administrative offence. And even then, that generally doesn't carry a prison sentence, but a fine. But you know, I thought, well, okay, for appearance's sake, maybe they'd put us, they'd um, sentence us to six months, and because we'd already spent six months in prison, we'd be able to walk straight away. With a worst-case scenario, maybe another month or two in prison, just to again at least be seen to be tough. Seven years—that was never something we thought we'd get not something we ever imagined possible. So that was, that was, that felt like being king hit by Mike Tyson. That was, that was tough. You've just found out you're about to spend the next seven years of your life in prison in Egypt. 
What were the days after that moment like and how did you decide to battle this? Uh, we were moved prisons soon after. Um, we were originally in a pretty austere prison for political prisons where most of our cellmates were senior Muslim Brotherhood figures. In fact, pretty much the old Muslim Brother cabinet was, was in there alongside us. And we were in the cell 23 hours a day on lockdown. Um, it, was, it, was, it was pretty extreme. But when we were convicted, we were moved to another prison which had a, a little bit more flexibility. Um, we still had to stay in the cell in, in pretty heavily confined spaces, but the cell was larger. Um, there was at least room to, to walk outside in the corridor outside the cell. So it was just a, it was a little bit more relaxed. But the other thing, crucially, was um, that the authorities agreed to let me start a master's degree um, in international relations because I felt, okay, I'm going to, if I'm going to spend seven years, I'm, I don't want to waste this time. Um, and so Griffith University very kindly agreed to, to support me with a master's degree. I did it the old-fashioned way. They sent over literally massive boxes of lecture notes and, and, and papers for me to read. Um, the embassy would come once every couple of weeks uh, for, a, for a visit and they would I'd handwrite my essays um, and I'd hand them to the, the, you know, the embassy who would take them back, scan them, send them off to my lecturer who would then give me his feedback uh, for the next visit and so it was sort of all a <laughs> very, very slow <laughs> old process but we, we, we started that course. We also recognised that we had to really step up the campaign and the question was always about what, how we how we frame this whether we try and defend ourselves as victims of, of a misunderstanding as you know merely innocent players on a, on a larger playing field or whether we recognize this as an attack on press freedom and that's really the, the route that we decided to go it was a high risk route but I also felt that that's actually what this was about that it wasn't about anything we had done, but it was about what we had come to represent. And once we understood it to be that kind of attack, I felt we had no choice but to fight it on that basis. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how to, about the messages that we needed to send um, around press freedom, around freedom of speech. And that was very much a part of what we were, we were trying to do. But there was also kind of pragmatic way of getting through each day. We had to spend time staying physically, mentally, but also spiritually strong. Um, you have to stay physically fit. And I, the embassy brought in a piece of paper with a program called 5BX, Five Basic Exercises, which was actually designed by the Canadian Air Force um, after World War II as a way of keeping their airmen fit if they're ever confined in um, and held in confined spaces as POWs. Uh, and that was really, really helpful. Okay, you know, basic exercise, press-ups, sit-ups, squats, those sorts of things that you, and, and, a, and a routine to go through and a program. Um, so we, we applied that. It was, it's designed now for, in the modern world for about 15 minutes a day. Uh, we stretched it out for, to about an hour a day. Um, you know, 
we needed to be mentally strong and that's one of the reasons why I started the degree because I needed some form of mental focus beyond that was outside of myself. It's very easy to get very self-absorbed in prison. Um, and then also a program of meditation as well to try and, try and stay spiritually fit as well. Those, those were, you had to keep routines up if you were ever going to, to stay, to get through prison in, in one piece. Did you ever give up hope? Did you think that this is it, seven years of my life I've, I'm going to give away? You know, hope is a funny thing. The, the very short answer to your question is yes, I gave up hope. But that's not negative, not in the destructive sense, not in the sense that you give up. What you do, what I realized is that you have to stop hoping because hoping means that you're always anticipating something better than the circumstances you're in. And if, you're always, if your mind is constantly somewhere else, then wherever you are at that point becomes intolerable. It feels intolerable. So if you're constantly hoping that maybe next week I'll get out, the weeks are constantly rolling by and you're not getting out. And that, having that sense of hope constantly dashed can actually be very destructive. So for me, yes, I gave up hope, not in the sense that I never expected to get out, but I stopped worrying about that point and started focusing on what I need to get through today. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about that program of being physically, um, intellectually, and spiritually strong. So you, you, you had no choice but to say, okay, these, these are my circumstances. I can fantasize about getting out and resuming my old life as much as I like. But the fact is that these, my life now, my reality is these four walls and I need to learn how to cope with this now um, rather than constantly hoping for some day that may or may not come. Your family, they played a very important role in alerting Australia to what was happening. The prosecution... Uh, did conclude its case with what um, I think in all fairness were pretty wild and, and sweeping allegations against the whole of the group. Were you surprised by their strength, their ability, um, even to front up to cameras and press conferences and handle all those questions? Oh, yeah. Look, I, I, I was incredibly lucky. The fact that my family was, was as articulate, um, as willing to take it on as lovable as my, as my, my parents in particular, but also my brothers were. Um, I'm under no illusions. The reason I'm able to sit here today and talk to you is because of my family. You know, They were the ones that really drove the campaign. They were the ones that really inspired people to get behind it. Uh, let's face it, Australians fell in love with my mum and dad, not with me. You know, I was some mute figure that they might have empath they might have felt sorry for, stuck in a cage in Egypt. But but what they felt was empathy for my, the pain of my parents and my family. Because those my parents and my family were so articulate in expressing that anguish that Australians responded to that in in droves, in millions. Uh, the free AJ staff hashtag received three billion impressions. Billion with a B. That's a phenomenal number by any, even in today's standards. That's that's a huge number, and it was, I think, largely because of of just how effective my family was in 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 communicating. 
What role do you think the media played in securing your release? Um, that was also a really big part of it. I mean, we, we, let's face it, we'll never be able to put our fingers on any one element that, that really swung it for us. But now to more serious matters and the fate of Australian TV reporter Peter Grester. Grester has now been in jail in Egypt for close to 100 days, locked in a cell three metres by four metres for 23 or but equally, 24 hours a day. But equally, we were also lucky. We also, let's face it, we were lucky on a whole host of levels. Um, the fact that I and my colleagues collectively had worked across a range of some of the world's most respected media, um, the fact that we'd worked around the world. You know, I worked for the BBC uh, for years. I'd also worked for Reuters. I'd worked alongside foreign correspondents. I'd, even, I'd worked briefly for CNN. And so our professional colleagues identified with us. They took on the fight as well in, to an extraordinary extent. They took selfies of them. I mean, for crying out loud, even Christian Amanpour, who was working for CNN at the time, our, our direct rivals, was standing up on air with the free AJ staff hashtag. You can't buy that kind of support, that kind of publicity. And more importantly, that unity across outlets was also massively important, I think, in pushing other diplomats to keep up the pressure on the Egyptians, but also keeping up very direct pressure on the Egyptians themselves. If we didn't have that, that, that uh, breadth of support across the media, I, I, I think it would have been very difficult for us to get out. And that's one of the most extraordinary lessons of this whole thing. The collective power that the media and the public has when we all pull together is enormous. It was effective. I would still be in prison if it weren't for that collective campaign. But here's the bad news. The fact is that it takes a campaign of that scale to spring three innocent guys from prison. So after 400 days of languishing in prison, you were released. Can you describe that day or tell us about that day? <laughs> that was a very, very weird day um, because I wasn't expecting to be released at all. It came right out of the blue. In fact, I was so not expecting to be released that I was actually on the day, on that day I went out for um, a run up and down the corridor in the morning um, and I was thinking that we need to start a hunger strike. I was going to tell my brother, who was due for a visit later that day, that we're going to have to start a hunger strike. We'd talked about it for quite a, quite a lot over the previous months, um, and it felt to me that the time was right because, as far as I was concerned, the authorities had no intention of letting us go. There was no sign of it for a whole host of reasons, legal, political, diplomatic reasons. Um, we seemed to have lost all of the best opportunities for release and it seemed to me that they were just playing with us. So I remember running up and down the corridor, uh, lost in my own little world, thinking about our strategy, thinking about what I was going to say to my brother, mentally preparing for this hunger strike. When one of the guards comes up, waves at me, interrupts me, stops me in the middle of my run, says, look, Mr. Peter, the boss, the warden, wants to see you. And I remember thinking, okay, that's a little bit odd. Um, Normally, they don't want to see you in sweats. You, you have to, there's a certain amount of formality in the system, and so I had to go and get changed into the proper prison uniform. Um, and the guard said, no, 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 he needs to see you now. Don't, don't bother changing. I thought, it's a bit odd. So he escorted me out, and in the courtyard outside, the warden was waiting with his deputy. And again, that's highly unusual. So I went over to him. I said, 
you know, what's up? He said, um, I've got some news for you. He said, um, pack your things, you're, you're going. And I said, what do you mean I'm going? You mean I'm moving prisons? He said, no, no, no. The embassy's coming for you in half an hour. You're going home. Get moving. Yella. <laughs> and it was just, it was so surreal. It was like, it was, it was bizarre. And I, my head was spinning. It was really hard to, to, to take in, to, to, to comprehend. The, gu- the, the warden also said to me, look, don't tell your colleagues where you're going or what's happening. I thought, I can't, bullshit. I can't do that. Um, so I went in and I told my colleagues, I said, look, I'm, I've got some news. That I'm, I'm going. I'm, I'm being released. And they were ecstatic. They were absolutely ecstatic. Um, they were embracing, high-fiving. It was fantastic. Because it was always hard. We, we'd, we'd kind of contemplated that prospect of one of us leaving before the others. And it, at the time, it always felt awkward. But we also realized that, in fact, the most effective advocate for those still in prison would be the person that had been released. Um, you know, it, it is hard walking away from that and leaving your colleagues behind. But equally, we, we realized that, well, personally, I always felt that if, when, whenever someone was released, it always felt as though a little part of my own self was being freed, and that always felt wonderful. So I, I imagined that if one of my colleagues had been released, um, the idea that they would refuse to go really made me feel quite sick. And I knew that would, that was the case for them as well. But it still felt really conflicted walking out of prison, um, getting into a prison van. I was put in the front of the van, not the back, which is where the prisoners usually sit in the cage in the back and this time the guards with the weapons were in the back and I was up the front um, the embassy was in the in a vehicle tailing us and we drove through the streets Cairo lights and sirens wailing at an incredible breakneck pace and I'm sort of wondering I, I haven't survived 400 days in prison just to die in a car accident <laughs> in Cairo on the way to the airport um, and we finally pull up at the at the airport screeching halt and the door of the van slides open and the um, one of the officers from the prison steps out shakes my hand and says you know thanks for staying hope you had a good time you know <laughs> hope it wasn't too bad for you you know have a great life do stay in touch I was like, yeah right whatever um, and then I was escorted in handed over to the ambassador Ralph King who was waiting there and uh, my brother, who was also waiting there, we got on a plane, and then, yeah, I just, I, I remember sitting on the aircraft, and it was so hard to understand, so hard to comprehend that, I swear, I half expected, as we were buckling up and taxiing out on the runway, the pilot to say, ladies and gentlemen, thank, you know, welcome on board flight Egypt Air 617 to, uh, bound for Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. You know, I, wouldn't, I would not have been surprised if, if, if that message had come through. But as it happened, we were heading for Cyprus. And as soon as we stepped off the plane in Cyprus, I realized that actually this was finally done. But it didn't end there for you, did it? Because the fight continued because you had your two colleagues still in prison. Oh, look, yeah, absolutely. And that was the first thing I said. You know, we, I had a couple of days in Cyprus just to decompress and, and absorb what had happened and then flew back to Australia. And when I got off the plane, there was that, that 
phenomenal wall of media, which I was just mind-blowing to me, absolutely mind-blowing. I never anticipated that that level of, of attention. Um, I thought when we when I stepped off the plane, when I was, as I was flying in, I thought, look, you know, the story's old. Everyone knows I've been released. You know, just coming home now, and I arrived at the airport about uh, 1 a.m. on a Wednesday morning, and I thought, you know, only a handful of the morning TV news programs would show up. Perhaps a couple of insomniac photographers might be there, but otherwise, you know, it's a whole day's news cycle before this is ever going to get out. You know, the gazillion things that will happen. No one's really going to want to pay much attention or effort to a bloke flying in at one o'clock in the morning. There was this vast wall of, of cameras. I, I, I just couldn't, couldn't believe the, the numbers of people that had actually shown up. It was phenomenal. And of course, the first thing I said then was that, look, this is great news. I'm so happy to be out, but there is still, there are still my colleagues. And if it's right for me to be free, then it's right for them to be free as well. And from that point on, we kept, we kept campaigning very, very hard indeed. So you went from reporting on the news to essentially being the news. How was that transition for you? Initially quite difficult. Being the subject of the stories was odd. I've always been the storyteller, not the story. And it felt, it felt weird for a while, but I finally came to the conclusion that, look, we, we've still got a campaign to fight, first of all, for my colleagues' release, but also more broadly around the issues of press freedom, freedom of speech journalist safety and so on. And I recognized that my story itself is interesting to people. And if that story is worth telling, if people are interested in it, if people are able to learn something deeper about issues around press freedom because of it, then then it's worth telling that story. Um, and in a funny way, let's go back to one of the things we said a lot earlier. Um, it made me feel quite bloody-minded that the Egyptians tried to shut us down. So every time I stood in front of a microphone and spoke not just about our experience, but spoke around the issues around press freedom, it was like flipping a proverbial middle finger um, at the Egyptians and saying, no, screw you. you, you can't silence me. In fact, if anything, you've given me a platform, you've given me microphones, you've actually made my voice louder, and damn it, I'm going to keep using that platform. So you said that your focus changed once you were released um, to your colleagues. What happened to them? Well, it's an interesting thing. I, um, after I was released, the I was released in a very um, narrow gap in the process. After we had won our appeal, um, when the when the Court of Cassation officially recognised that uh, or ordered the retrial and, and declared us to be accused prisoners rather than convicts. Um, but before the retrial could actually begin. After I was released a couple of weeks later, the retrial began and my colleagues, in fact, including myself, were all placed on trial. I was technically on trial in absentia. Um, they were released on bail through the whole period of the trial. But six months later, when the retrial ended, we were all reconvicted and they went back to prison. We really stepped up, we ramped up the campaign once again because we all, again, rather perhaps naively felt that they would probably be released after all that. And uh, about a month later, they were finally pardoned and, and set free. Curiously enough, the pardon didn't extend to me, so I'm still a convicted terrorist. I still have an outstanding prison sentence to serve in Egypt. 
Um, but the other guys have gone on to other things. Uh, Femi is now w- living and working out of Canada, um, doing other um, academic work, doing media consulting and so on. Um, my other colleague, Bahir, is, is at work in, in Doha. So you are not planning on going back to Egypt? Not anytime soon. I'm frustrated. I would love to see the pyramids, but I don't think that's on the cards. Travel is still a, a very serious problem for me. Um, any country that has an extradition treaty is technically a problem with Egypt, um, and that's a not insignificant number of countries, places like the Middle East, African Union, and so on, all have extradition treaties. But also, there are plenty of other countries that require you to state on your visa application forms whether you've got a criminal record or not. Well, one of those countries is the United States. And when you fill out the online form, you check the box that asks whether you have a criminal record, and I have to say yes, and then up comes another box saying, please explain. And I have to say I was convicted on terrorism charges in Egypt. And of course, <laughs> all the klaxon sound in the United States, the Homeland Security guys come panicking, running through. It's a big drama. In the almost four years since you've um, been released, you've, you've become quite an advocate for the freedom of the press. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, whether I like it or not, that's the way my life has evolved. And I feel a certain responsibility because I do feel, and I, as I explained earlier, I feel as though all journalists have come under enormous pressure around the world in recent years. Um, and I feel as though press freedom generally is, is backsliding. I mean, you only need to look at some of the reports from organizations like Freedom House, who in, in their annual report from last year said that press freedom is the worst that it's been in the last 15 years. Um, and that's that's deeply troubling. We should be moving forward on this, not backwards. Um, and so if there were literally thousands of journalists around the world who were advocating for our freedom while we're in Egypt, I feel as though I've, I've got a, both a responsibility, but as I said a moment ago, a platform to keep talking about press freedom issues. That's now my life. Um, I can use my experience to educate and inform the next generation of journalists as I'm doing here at University of Queensland, but also to keep investigating, thinking about and talking about the wider issues around press freedom. In the war on terror, governments have seen license to define national security and terrorism so broadly that it, in a lot of cases, and in this case as well, that it it's, it's actually had the effect of silencing press freedom and in the process damaging the way our democracy works. And I think we need to push back against that. We need to underline the really important role that press freedom has played in our democracy over the past 200 years. We need to remind people of the fundamental role that it has played and make sure that people understand the importance of defending that role. If we keep chipping away at it, if we keep limiting the work that journalists are able to do, keep keeping, keep creating blind spots that they can't look into, then we create opportunities for things to go wrong, for bad stuff to happen. And I feel very passionate about you know, maintaining that pressure. One of the problems is that in this digital world, we've got so many sources of information that we have the illusion of being well-informed. But quantity isn't the same as quality. Um, and we need to make sure that we understand that you cannot have a strong democracy without strong journalism. 
That actually creates a great segue because earlier this year you were appointed as the UNESCO Chair of Journalism and Communication at UQ. So it's a great title, you, isn't it? Isn't it? It sounds very <laughs> impressive. Um, so how do you feel about this new appointment and um, what are you hoping to instill in this next generation of journalists? I, I love the position. I mean, I think the title itself <laughs> does sound a little bit pompous at, at one level. I, I, I don't mean to be dismissive of it. I'm, I'm, it's a great honour to, 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 to have that chair's title. And it is important because it, it, it underscores the importance of the role. It underscores the importance of the subject. Um, and it gives me both the authority but also the capacity to really investigate to drive research into areas around journalism, communication, the role of the media, freedom of the press, and so on. Um, so at one level, it means that I have the capacity to dig into it, to investigate, to expand the journalist, the, the old journalism work that I used to do uh, through academia, um, but also to use that research to talk publicly and with authority about these issues, to make submissions to government, to lobby internationally, to speak about press freedom. But also at a much more granular level, it means I can speak to journalists and give them some of the benefit of my own experience over the years, some of the lessons that I've learned, the very hard lessons that I really, that I'm hoping others can learn without having to go through some of the dramas that, I, that I've had over the years. And make, just remind journalists, the next generation of journalists, about why the job matters and to underline some of those really basic principles of what it is, why we exist, what we're supposed to do, the role we're supposed to play, and hopefully inspire them to, to really drill down and do that job with passion and commitment. I feel like we can keep asking you questions, but we do have to wrap it up. But before we close the episode, um, we have a short segment called Spare Change in which we get to know you a bit better with some rapid fire questions. So here we go. What's the one fact that listeners wouldn't know about you? Oh, I'm a kite surfer. I love kite surfing. Um, It's something I started when I was actually living in Kenya. Uh, There's no way I'm going to leave this area without actually making the most of living on the beach and uh, kite surfing was the thing that inspired me so what is the one question you're sick of being asked what was it like in prison it, it's such a big ge- generic amorphous question that has so many bits to it that it, it's impossible to answer i completely understand why people ask it but uh, it's just a difficult thing to 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 really respond to If you could go back in time by 10 years, what advice would you give your younger self? I think I'd give my my younger self the advice to to be fearless in in reporting. Um, You know, just to to cover what you believe in rather than what you feel you should or what other people think you ought to be doing. Who or what is your biggest influence in life? You know, I would have to say a guy who died in 1985, I think it was, um, a character called called Neil Davis, um, an amazing Australian cameraman who was working in Vietnam 
um, and Laos, Cambodia, across Southeast Asia through the 60s and 70s and 80s. One of the most extraordinary and extraordinarily brave journalists um, ever. And um, he was killed in a, in a coup in, in Thailand, in Bangkok. But his, his biography, a book called One Crowded Hour, was the book that I read just before I decided I really wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And it was my inspiration. If you had to choose a piece of music that would best describe you, which song would you play? You know, a, a song that most people probably wouldn't know. It's a song by a guy called Felakuti, who is um, the father of Afrobeats. You know, he's a Nigerian musician, um, a wonderfully political musician, and there's this fantastic song called Water No Get Enemy. Um, it's about how water flows around things, around problems. Um, and that, that to me is, is, is the song. And it's a brilliant song too. That's the end of another episode of UQ Changemakers. If you want to learn more about Peter Grester and the School of Communication and Arts, visit our website at uq.edu.au forward slash changemakers, where you can also subscribe to Changemakers magazine. I'm Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. Our podcast was produced by Michael Jones, Rachel Westbury and Jessica McGaw. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends or colleagues, leave a review on iTunes or email us at changemakers at uq.edu.au. If you want to create change, tune in next time when we interview another inspiring member of the UQ community. Thanks for listening.